Chicago-based restaurant reservation company Talk launches an online wine shop, aiming to give wineries a more seamless way to ship their products directly to consumers. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about local housing, including how the market may have slowed, but there are still plenty of interesting homes for sale at the moment, including an Oak Park bungalow once owned by a famous mobster. He lived there until he was murdered in this house in 1975. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, November 3rd. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit J.D power.com slash awards. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Gist Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hey, Dennis. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Happy belated Halloween to you. Thank you. Did you dress up? Yeah, I came as a mountain range. I don't know if you can tell from my shirt. (laughs) Yeah, very festive shirts indeed. And you? Um, I did not dress up. Let's see, what's purple? I'm wearing a purple shirt. I'm Barney? Grimace? I don't know. Uh oh. <laughs> Let's go with that. Do we have I love you? You love me queued up? <laughs> <laughs> that one? All right. Well, we've got a lot of stories as ever uh, to get into. So let's start by talking about new home sales. What are we seeing there? Uh, We're seeing something that was predictable and that was predicted by our primary source on housing new home sales, uh, Tracy Cross Associates out in Schaumburg. Um, In the third quarter, the data is just out this week for the third quarter of 2021 for Chicago area builders. Um, They sold 893 homes. Uh, That was down 19.2% from the third quarter of 2021. And it's the lowest third quarter since 2017. This is something that Tracy Cross, uh, and particularly its CEO, Eric Dorshing, has been predicting and that you and I talked about within the last few weeks, Amy, because we had a longer story out about how the housing boom really was more of a blip for uh, new home builders in the Chicago area area, pipeline was very suppressed going into the housing boom because we'd had 10 years or more of very, very low new home sales. So nothing was underway. And then the home, the, uh, the boom was not long enough for people to, for builders to say, oh, wow, this is nuts. I got to get something in the ground. And so then by the time the boom ended, Uh, there really hadn't been a lot of new inventory produced. So most of these sales are really just depleting uh, inventory that either was finished or was underway at the beginning of the boom, um, which is not great news. Uh, we, We really do not have the vibrant new home building sector that other cities have and that we had uh, uh, up going up into the last big boom, the 2000, the boom that turned into a crash in 2007. 
<clears throat> um, 25,000 new homes sold a year at that time. Now 5,000 is impressive, and we rarely reach that. Uh, and it looks like we probably won't hit 5,000 this year. By the end of the third quarter, there were 2,682 new homes sold. Uh, fourth quarter is generally the slowest, so um, we'll see what, what information we have in January from Tracy Cross. Yeah, 25,000 to 5,000, that's a pretty big jump. And remember, 5,000 was, was during a really good year, during the boom. Right. Um, we, were, yeah. we were seeing 4,000. Uh, and I think the peak, the the old peak back before the last housing bust was actually well above 25,000. I think there were there was one year where about 28,000 were sold. That was when there was a lot of move out into the suburbs by corporate offices. Um, population was still growing in Chicago and Illinois. Um, job centers have moved back toward the city, so there's not as much reason to build out at the edges. And our population has been flat or declining for several years, so that demand for new construction has really just sort of fizzled. That's so interesting. Uh, it will be interesting to kind of look at that in a long tail way when we can look at maybe a year or two out uh, to kind of look at what, what that housing boom looked like, even though it was kind of a blip and it took, you know, it takes time to catch up with that. It'll be interesting to kind of look at that in a multi-year kind of way, I think. Yeah, I think it will. I think we'll all, we'll be looking back on it in a lot of sectors. We'll be looking at that super luxury part. We'll be looking at the moves out to Indiana and Wisconsin. We'll be looking at all kinds of pieces of it, but the new home building uh, will certainly be one of them. Yeah, for sure. Once in a while, we mention a celebrity here uh, when talking about real estate. You know, a, a sports player sells a home or something like that. But it is not often that we have a connection to Michael Jackson here in real estate. But talk to me about this connection nonetheless. And I did. I left you guessing at the end of our talk last week, right? When I said I had a story about the biggest celebrity there ever was. Yes. I think Michael Jackson qualifies. Absolutely. Um, I think you've delivered on that promise. Thank you. Um, Two, young, two men who were top aides to Michael Jackson at the time of his death, worked for him for the last few years of his death, are now real estate investors based in L.A., but, um, partly, but they have uh, created a rental portfolio here in Chicago. They have, they're closing on a group of rentals that will get them up to 83 units of rental property in primarily in South Side neighborhoods, South Chicago, West Pullman, South Shore, and others. Um, the two men, Michael Amir and uh, Fahim Muhammad, talked to me a little bit, and it's really interesting. They so they were based in L.A. They're Californians. They don't. They have you know ties to Chicago like anybody does. They've been here. They have friends here. That sort of thing. But it just it became very expensive to acquire uh, flips, re houses they could rehab and flip in Los Angeles. So they started looking in Chicago, which was far cheaper. And then they started talking to people and realized, you know, what's really needed here is rental housing, good quality rental housing in some of these neighborhoods. And so the first one they did, which was in West Pullman, they didn't flip. They instead turned into a rental. And I spoke to the woman who rents that house. They started buying here in 2019, finished that one in 20. 
21, I think. Um, and she said that the difference between the product they offer and what you're usually looking for, if you've got, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mention, um, most of these are for people with housing vouchers. And she said she has walked into rentals and turned around and walked out. She can't believe the, the low quality of some of the rentals that are offered when you arrive with a housing voucher. These two men think, you know, that's really not fair. Let's provide people good quality housing to rent, even at that level. She walked into this one, totally loved it. Um, and rented it and really feels that they're providing a service that is needed in these neighborhoods. So they're up to uh, 80, or they, when they close on this last round, they'll be up to 83 units. They want to continue buying, rehabbing, and renting. Some of this is not rehab, some of it will be new. They bought, there's this really interesting building um, that used to be the South Shore Swedish Club, uh, had a ballroom and other things. It's been empty for many years, I, actually, I don't know for many years. It's been empty for years, and I'm not sure for how long. They are rehabbing it. The second floor had some um, club rooms, some sleeping rooms upstairs. They're adding a third floor with rentals, and they'll put a venue, or an entertainment venue on the first floor. So some of it is new, some of it is rehabbed, some of it is um, apartment or multi-unit, some of it is single family. Um, there's not a lot of really nice looking single family rental house stock. On, in these south side neighborhoods. So they feel that they're uh, supplying what's needed. At the same time, they're, they're trying to create jobs. They work with a construction institute to employ people who are learning skills in those neighborhoods. The end product, they believe, is helping to reduce crime in these neighborhoods because people have stable homes, people have better jobs, and those, they think, contribute to bringing down the, the inclination toward crime in areas like that. Yeah, so they're, they're uh, going into the rental game, but with kind of this bigger vision of what that could mean for this, for this neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting. Yeah, to go back to the Michael Jackson part, they, they truly were top aides to him. One was his chief of staff, and one was his chief of security uh, at the time that he died. And they both testified in the trials. They were not, of course, involved in the death, um, uh, which, as most people know, was by an overdose, um, possibly, probably administered by a physician to Michael Jackson. Um, they testified. They were on the scene afterward and, and that sort of thing. But I got all that from research online. They don't talk about it. They didn't say, oh, yeah, Michael Jackson told me this or any of that. They, um, I found all this out and they said, well, yeah, yes, that is what we did, but we don't like to trade on that, which I thought was, you know, probably a good way to go, an admirable way to go, I should say. Right. And, and so they're still based in Los Angeles or they've relocated here? They spend time here, uh, but they're based in Los Angeles. I would imagine if your portfolio grows large enough here, uh, you need to have more of a base here. But they were here when I talked to them, um, and they're, they're in and out. All right, well, let's look at some other houses. Let's talk about um, a Lincoln Park sale for around $9 million. But it's maybe just for the land, not the house? It's only for the land. Yeah, this one, this happened on Tuesday. Uh, uh, four lots, uh, it's typical in Chicago is for a lot to be 25 by 125. This is 100 by 125 on Orchard in Lincoln Park in that neighborhood. You know, uh, a reader once told me to call it Woe Baby because it's in the, the streets are Willow, Howe, Orchard, uh, Armitage, and 
Burling. Right. Whoa, baby. Um, <laughs> this is on Orchard. Four lots. This, this site can accommodate a 21,000-square-foot house. They paid $9 million for the land alone. When you spend $9 million for the land, you're going to spend at least that most likely, for the house. I estimated, based on some general construction figures, that they might spend as much as $16 million to build the house. Very likely that they would spend even more, but I have to be conservative with those estimates. Um, the, the company that sold the lot is BGDNC. Um, they have built many high-end homes in that neighborhood, and they had offered this site for quite a while. Uh, they, at one point, a couple of years ago, I wrote about it when they actually thought they were going to offer five lots, and you could build a 37,000-square-foot house on it. They ended up not buying that fifth lot. Um, but they're, they're a frequent source of mine. They're called BDGNC, uh, or B, sorry, see, I get this wrong, BGDNC. Um, and I learned from them once that the way to remember which order to put those initials is it's big girls don't cry. <laughs> That's a B, G, D, and C. Good device. Yeah. There you go. Um, I'm not going to sing the song to you. That's what I was waiting for. Okay. <laughs> Fine. It pops into my head every time. But anyway, so B, G, D, and C, they've built many houses. They will build what's here. They wouldn't talk to me. You know, they've got client confidentiality things. They wouldn't talk to me about what will be built. I'll probably be pursuing that and see what I can find out. But this could be uh, uh, as much as a 21,000-square-foot house. The one thing they did tell me is that uh, probably – the, the family doesn't build to the max because most people now building in that neighborhood want to have a side yard. So uh, it's more likely, mm -hmm. it seems, that they'd build in the 15,000 square foot range. Still quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. And so the house that's on the property now, is it not in good shape? I mean, it looks like such an interesting home. I'm glad you brought that up. I should have said, that's just a rendering. That ah. is what they had on the listing. We don't have a photo of the site. So it's four lots. On three of those lots, there were older buildings that are now being demolished. Now that the site has been sold, the, the builder confirmed to me that they are now demolishing those buildings. And the fourth lot was already uh, empty. So this is really just sort of, this is what the builder offers as sort of an idea. Here's what you could build there. Um, I'm sorry, I should have pointed that out. This, this picture just, uh, just was at the top of their listing. Usually you can tell it's a rendering. That looks like a photograph. And I was going to say, why would you tear down this beautiful house? I am with the program now. Got it. Yeah. Sorry. That's my, that's my fault. I should have said this is not what's on that site. On that site uh, is now turning into rubble. I see. Well. Okay, well, we'll have to revisit this and see what gets built there. All right, speaking of that $9 million range, let's take a look at a condo on Walton Street that has sold for $9.4 million. Yeah, and in this case, it actually comes with a home to live in. It's not just a piece yes, of land. not just land. Yeah, so this was, this was a condo at um, the Waldorf Astoria, which we've spoken about many times, sold for $9.4 I had written about it when it came on the market in 2021 at $15 million. So obviously, they didn't get their, their goal. Um, sold for $9.4 It's a, it, Again, it's in the Waldorf Astoria. 
the, the sellers bought it in 2010 for 6.3 million. I'm not sure whether these are strictly the developer finishes we're seeing or whether they made upgrades. I also don't know for sure that they moved in. They owned it from 2010, so I assume they did. But I wasn't able to get any confirmation from them or from the agent. So I don't know a whole lot about the property except that it's got uh, like you get there at the wall at a lot of the units at the Waldorf it's got these big balconies with views out all over the city um, and it's kind of interesting it sold for 9.4 million you know that I track the upper end of the market as of now this this is now the 10th highest price anybody's paid in 2022 9.4 million so to be in the top 10 it's 9.4 million or higher and our highest right now is 20.5 million last year the top t the bottom of the top 10 was 8.1 million so we're already seeing top 10 prices at 1.3 million dollars higher than last year which is just another way to say what i say almost every week on here which is that the top end of the market just keeps rising higher and higher and higher um, there's another sale in between this one and that nine million dollar lot we just talked about uh, if you look at the, the top 15 sales of the year so far, nine of them are downtown condos. Um, so all those fears people had in 2020 and into 2021 that, oh, you know, people of means were not going to move into the city anymore. Uh, they're doing it. They're doing it at 20 million. They're doing it at 9.4 million. Yeah. I have never been so excited for the January show with you, Dennis, because I cannot wait <laughs> to see how the year shakes out. Because every time we think, oh, this is the top. Oh, this is, you know, it can't get any bigger. There's got to be. No, it, it keeps going. And it's just fascinating to watch the upper end of the market like this. Well, let me add one more. So that was the top 10. But you know that I also I track everything from 4 million up because for a long time, the top 50 sales all came in at 4 million or more for several years. We blew past that in 20 uh, in 2021. Right. In 2021, there were 101 sales at $4 million or more compared to that norm of 50. That was kind of amazing. So f 101 last year. So far this year, two months still to go, 124. That's Unbelievable. So even if it all grinds to a halt tomorrow, uh, this is a record year for sales at $4 million or more. And as you have suggested, I'll have to stop talking about $4 million because it's not a benchmark anymore. The bottom, of our, uh, the bottom of our top 50 is now at $5 million. Like I said, cannot wait to talk about this in January <laughs> because I'm just dying to know how it shakes out. It may be one of the bright spots because the rest of the market is suffering so much. The mar in the parts of the market where people are uh, dealing with interest rates, people buying at, that, at these levels we're talking about aren't. Everybody else is suffering so much. Sales are off so much that this may be the, the real bright spot is um, the, the extreme upper end. All right, well, let's take a look at another house. There's actually several houses that are so interesting that I'm dying to talk with you about. This one... A rehabber thought the living room was maybe missing a little something, started digging around and discovered quite a cool piece of art in the house. This is pretty remarkable. So I have written about this family before, the Halims, Nefret Halim in particular. Uh, they buy houses in Kenilworth that might otherwise be torn down. They're trying to keep the historical housing stock in Kenilworth. These are multi-million dollar houses. These are... Um, so, you know, they're working at the upper end of rehabbing. And she, she bought this one in, I think, I think it's 2015. 
uh, designed by George W. Mayer. She grew up in a mayor house, and some of the others, she has rehabbed her mayor houses. And she walks in, and she just kind of feels like, huh, I think there's something missing here. Mayer was this really interesting prairie school architect who came up with a motif for each house. It might be tulips, it might be thistles. In this house, it was lotuses. And there are lotuses in the glass windows literally on four sides of the room just because of the way the room the staircase and stuff you're surround you walk in and you're surrounded by these glass renderings of lotuses floating up and and that's kind of amazing but right there she said where there where you would expect there to be a focal point of this composition there was just paneling in a mirror and she just felt this this can't be right this isn't right so she has her tradespeople pulling away the paneling, and they find a glass mosaic rendering of lotuses floating in a pond, and you can see the birch trees growing up out of the pond. Uh, I, I think you can tell in this image that there's sort of a shimmering on the surface of the pond. That's copper-colored glass. Um, and so this is, if you're looking at this, your back is to a set of windows through which a lot of daylight is pouring. And the whole idea was the light is pouring through one set of windows into this pond. Wow, how beautiful. And so she said she found this and she could not believe it. She's sort of an aficionado of this stuff. Her family also has a museum in Evanston, the Museum of, uh, the museum of Time and Glass, or the Time and Glass Museum, where there's a lot of historical stained glass. She, she knows this stuff. And she found this and was agog. She determined that it's by Giannini and Hilgart. It, it, the house is from 1912. This would be from 1912. It's by Giannini and Hilgart, who did a lot of other mosaics around in, in high-end houses in LaGrange and elsewhere. And it had been covered. She's not sure when. Appeared about the 1950s just because of the material it was covered with. And it had been hiding there all those years. And so now, when you walk into this room, and I did, you've got lotuses floating all around you on four sides and then this pond where they're floating on the surface beneath these birch trees it is i said in the story you know it's a little much as a decorative scheme we don't really like make a room into a lotus pond these days but maybe you don't maybe <laughs> <laughs> let's see i can't really see that in your room there um no but in 1912, you know, these very artistic homes being done not only by Frank Lloyd Wright, but by George Mayer and many others really created sort of an immersive experience. And here you were surrounded by these lotuses. So great news. It was nobody ever like chipped it out with a chisel, you know, and tossed it in the trash. And the other thing is she feels that there's really no point in removing it and trying to sell it or anything like that, because the idea is you have this complete composition in this room. It's pretty remarkable. She's got the house on the market for a little, for more than uh, the price just slipped my mind. I think it's 3 million, 3.2. Uh, it's also available for rent. Um, and it's just got this wonderful feeling to it. Uh, I should say she not only did she rehab the original house, but she added to it. It's about twice the size it was when she bought it. It has modern kitchen and family room and all that. This is the exterior, all rehabbed. Before we go, I should say, we're, we're here to talk about those windows. But that balcony across the top there is also an addition she made. The, the addition to the house is not visible. It's in the back. But that balcony was on the house originally. 
and she's found it in photos, but it had been removed by the time she bought the house. So real meticulous. When you go into this house, you see this is what a high-end rehabber can do. You know, think about that. If she had not known this work and known to look and say, hey, this is missing. There's got to be something underneath that. Somebody could have come in with just a sledgehammer and started, oh, let's take out this drywall just to expose the brick and totally demolish that glass. That I'm right. like, what a stroke of luck that Absolutely. she's the person that has this home. And I think that's why she does it. That's why she and her family have been buying these houses is they get them. They get these houses. She grew up in one a few blocks from here. They're, they're very concerned about this. You know, the, the George W. Mayer houses, we've talked about them before. He's not as, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is. He's not as iconic as Frank Lloyd Wright and some of the other Prairie School architects. But those who know him know that his work in Chicago, in Kenilworth, in many, in uh, Oak Park, where he did Pleasant Home, is some of the finest residential architecture you can find in the Chicago area from the early 20. Uh, yeah, from the early 20th century, the early 1900s, really spectacular homes. And there, she and her family are trying to sort of keep as many of those alive as possible. All right. So speaking of Oak Park, which you just mentioned, let's talk about um, a house in Oak Park that is on the market that has some good stories attached to it about some crime organization figures. Tell me about this. This is the former home of Sam Giancana. Sam Giancana ran the Chicago mob in the 1950s and 60s. He and his wife, Angeline, bought this bungalow in 1945. Uh, she died in the 1950s. He lived there until he was murdered in this house in 1975. A lot of people know he, uh, there's sort of a mystery to who killed him, but he was shot. He was slain in the basement kitchen while he was cooking sausage and peppers for a visitor. And apparently that visitor is the person who killed him. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty notorious house. It's so notorious, Amy. I didn't grow up here. I grew up in San Diego. My younger sister, when we were kids, was fascinated by Sam Giancana and his house in Oak Park, even though we had nothing to do with Chicago. This is how famous it was and how famous he was. So Giancana is running the Chicago mob. He's hanging out with the Kennedys, both the president and the attorney general. He's hanging out with Frank Sinatra. He's hanging out with Marilyn Monroe. He is rumored to be the person who introduced Marilyn Monroe to the Kennedys. He was, he was con playing with like high-end figures and his primary base was this bungalow in Oak Park. Also, as far as I can tell, had a home in Las Vegas. Um, died in 1975. It went through another owner. And in 1991, a couple bought it. The man, Mike, um, had grown up trick-or-treating in this house. And what he told me was that um, you used to go down to the basement because the butler lived down there. So that was where you went to get the candy. So he used to <laughs> trick or treat in the basement where Giancana was assassinated. Well, and then he bought the house. So they bought it in 1991. They are now down. Their, their kids are grown. It's a five bedroom house. They're downsizing. They put it on the market. Um, and they're, uh, they're asking 1.1 million. It's a uh, it's on a double lot. It's on a huge lot. And he told me the, the, the comment he made was so interesting. He said, you know, everybody's always interested in the history. They're always interested in Sam Giancana. Oh, Giancana was killed here. But w what it is to me is a house on a corner lot with a lot of windows, a great place to raise kids and a lot of sunlight. It is a cool house. I mean, it really does have some really you know, beautiful details on the on the exterior. It does. Uh, you might do some updating um, because, again, you know, they, they bought it in 1991. 
but uh, it's a it's a pretty interesting property, and I just like the sort of difference between yeah, there's this sort of bloody mobster history in this house, but it's also got a lot of sunlight, and it was a great place to raise kids. Right. It's also got this kind of happy, you know, happy sunlit story attached to it too. Yeah. Very well known to people, you know, the, the tour buses pass and things. Everybody has known this oh, house. Oh, they do, yeah. And now it's possible to go live there and, you know, live like Giancana. Sure. Well, hopefully not too much yeah. like Giancana. If you right. like sausage and peppers, um, well, <laughs> this is the place to cook them. Watch out. Right. Um, well, we talked earlier about a house, uh, uh, some demo happening, um, but let's talk about another house. So uh, anybody who drives around in Edgewater knows this house. It is this this old house that is in a state of disrepair. It's right on Sheridan, but it is it is set to be demolished. It is, yeah. It's in the 5800 block of Sheridan on the west side, the the inland side. Uh, but when it was built, it would have had it would have been on the lake because Sheridan Road was essentially a lakefront boulevard, and and then properties were built on the other side. And at the time it was built in 1900. This would have been, uh, well, this in a better condition would have been typical of the street. A lot of Oscar Meyer lived on the street. The owner of the Cubs, Wiegman, lived on the street. Lots of big industrialists lived on uh, Sheridan Road in Edgewater, developed by John Cochran as a suburb in the city. Developed essentially, you know, you don't have to move up to Winnetka, et cetera. Live here in the city on the lakefront in a big house. Big stylish homes, early 20th century, lined the street. Um, but then, um, most were replaced over the decades by mid-rise and nearly high, well, five-story and mid-rise uh, residential buildings, primarily condos, apartments on both sides of Sheridan Road all the way through there. There are only a few of these older houses left. This one uh, has been falling apart. I don't know how long it's been unoccupied, but at the time of the sale last week, it was unoccupied. Sold for uh, $1.2 million. It's on a very large lot. Um, the agent for the buyer confirmed that it will be demolished, could not or would not tell me the plans for the site, but you know, you don't demolish and not build. So I think in the course of the next year, we'll probably have more information on what's going to go there. I would assume multifamily because you're unlikely to build a house in the shadows. You can see that there are high, higher, higher buildings on both sides of this house. Also on Sheridan Road across the street, um, higher buildings. Although the listing says that from this house, you see sort of between, through a gap, you can still see the water. Um, built in 1900 for an industrialist, the head of, uh, or the, an, an executive in a family-owned foundry, they owned it for the first 30 years. A later, built, a later owner built an outdoor pool and then sued the city to uh, enclose the pool and make it an indoor pool because he had a physically disabled son who needed year-round swim therapy. Um, so it's got, it's got a, an interesting history, but it does look, I think you said, it's in a state of disrepair now. Don't know how long it's been empty, and pretty soon we'll see it go. There are only about five others left, though there were dozens uh, in its heyday. You know, every time I have ever gone by that house, I always think, oh, it's such a cool house. Someone should buy that and do something with it and, you know, save it before it just falls too far, you know, before it's too far gone. But, you know... This is, I mean, that's part of it. Houses get old. I get it. And if you don't maintain them, 
Yeah, right. This one hasn't been maintained. There was, I mean, it was just as likely when I called the agent that he would say, oh, my clients are going to put it back in order. It's a great neighborhood. And that would have been an interesting story, too, that this is being rehabbed. Not entirely surprising that the answer was, yeah, yeah, it's going to be torn down. And it looks like it's on a pretty big lot. Is that a double lot? It is. Uh, I don't remember the dimensions. It's more than a double lot. I think it might be a quarter acre. It's a very large lot. That was that was typical. That's one of the reasons there are all these multi-flat buildings now is that the houses were built on big lots. So it's easy for me to sell it to you, a developer, and for you to replace it. Build something larger. Yeah. All right. Well, one other house I want to talk about. This one is in Olympia Fields, also for sale. This looks like a retreat. It's kind of this glass house in the woods that just looks like so it looks like a little piece of Zen in the day. Tell me about this place. Oh, yeah. I wish I'd said that in the story. It is a little piece of Zen. This house is so interesting. I actually have written about it a couple of times because it has sold a few times in the last decade. Unfortunately, the reason it's on the market now is that the person who bought it in 2019 died this summer. Um, But it's so you can see it's just a glass and concrete pavilion. Yeah. Or that's what it looks like. When you get in, you find out that actually downstairs, it sits on the edge of a bluff. And downstairs, it's got sort of an upside down living arrangement because on the upper floor, the one we were seeing are seeing now, Um, you're surrounded by glass and then downstairs you still have windows because it's on a bluff uh, but you have more formal more um, traditional enclosed rooms so the bedrooms and things are down there rather than living floor and then going up to the bedrooms this was designed in 1964 by an architect harry rockwell who went by deaver rockwell he built it for himself and his family Uh, Built it in 1964. The family owned it until 2006. Um, It's an incredible location. You can see, so not only um, does does the land sort of drop off, but, but at the bottom of that land, there's a stream. And then on the other side, there's a 35 acre park. And all around you on the other sides, it's wooded. It's a wooded neighborhood. So you're really, you might as well be out in the middle of nowhere, as the agent told me. Uh, you're out in the middle of, no- of nowhere, but you're 38 miles from downtown, downtown Chicago. You're two miles from a, sorry, you're less than two miles from a metro station. And um, I like that they've put it on the market in the fall because you see all that fall color. It's so pretty. But imagine in the spring when all the trees are budding or in the summer when everything is thick, thick and green, you would be really plunged into the woods in this glass box. Um, Really interesting. Uh, And as I said, it it has sold a couple of times. It was sold in 2006 by the family. Then in about 2015, that buyer um, sold it to a design executive from Starbucks who did some of the rehab, updated the cabinetry and things like that. Those people sold it in 2019 to this man who unfortunately recently died. The idea is you are immersed in your natural setting. The trees are all around. And so Deva Rockwell did this really interesting thing. The, I said the exterior is glass and concrete. The concrete is that pebbly aggregate concrete with um, Eau Claire River gravel in it. The floors inside are the same. The sort of plinth that the house sits on to make that bluff solid, uh, stable, that is the same concrete. So the inside material is the outside material and vice versa. And I think in this house, the inside of the house is the outside of the house. 
You know, I mean, you're always surrounded by nature. Here we are on that lower level. It is not a basement. It's, it's like a second floor, but below, because it opens, this is sort of, uh, well, this is back on that main level, but the room we were just in opens out onto a terrace. Um, and when we see the back of the house, you'll see it's two stories, essentially all glass, with these concrete terraces spilling down, uh, concrete stairs spilling down to a terrace, and then you can go down from there if you want to the stream. Really, I mean, this, I, I, I shot a TV segment in this house once, and everybody, the camera people, everybody, just like, you can't close your mouth because your tongue is hanging out. It's such a spectacular house. The price is $699,000. It's on two, two acres or two and a half acres. It's on uh, it's on about two acres. I apologize that I don't have that written down. Really just a very special house. Really, you know, uh, so Deaver Rockwell was a student of Mies van der Rohe. And Mies van der Rohe and Philip Johnson in New York, of course, are the people who really pioneered this glass house concept. And Mies van der Rohe is right here over my shoulder. There's a high rise there. Um, and this, this man who owned it recently, you referred to this as a retreat. He owned this Miesian house in the country, in Olympia Fields. And he also lived on Lakeshore Drive in, one of the, in the, a Mies building at 900 Lakeshore Drive. So he had that glass-walled concept looking out at the city and Lake Michigan, and then drive 38 miles down to this and have that same glass-walled concept looking out at the woods. Here, this is one of the pictures of the back where you can, I think we might have another one where you can see it's, it's two stories of glass and concrete, sort of a sheer face that itself looks like a bluff sitting on top of this bluff and then it's a drop. I mean, we call it a bluff, but we're in Chicago, you know, it's not A bluff that. by Illinois standards. <laughs> I'm a little bit obsessed with the bedrooms with these wraparound windows. Imagine just waking up and opening the drapes and just seeing beautiful trees on every, you know, in every direction. How can you not wake up just blissed out and just super zen if that's your setting? Oh, yeah, I, can, I think so, too. But the interesting thing about this house is you can, if that bothers you, if you feel like, so the neighbors can't see you from, in, in you, you are completely isolated. But if it bothers you to be sleeping surrounded by glass walls for any reason, there are five bedrooms on the lower level. One of them, one of them is pretty big and could easily be a primary. Um, and one of the recent owners, I can't recall which, did that, slept on the lower level and had sort of a lofty office um, mm. writing yeah. space where there is now a, a primary bedroom. So you could, you could do it either way. And also, if you have a bunch of kids and want to sleep on the same floor as them, you might sleep down there. I would sleep exactly as you're describing. I would sleep in the, on that main floor because the glass and the, the um, colors all around would be spectacular to wake up to. And it's big. This isn't even the whole room. There's, those two settees lead to sort of a, a television area. It's a big room. Yeah, well, that room is bigger than my entire apartment. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> All right, well, what's coming up in the week ahead, Dennis? Uh, well, I'll give you another tease. A property okay. I wrote about recently is coming back in a very interesting way. It's, th oh. This is, this is going to be, I think people are going to be so into this. And in fact, they're going to be able to go into this property. Okay, that's a very good tease. Hmm. I'm getting better I'm at this. Very much, very much looking forward to what I, I'm going to be thinking about all week. Like, what in the world? Is I know you will. About? All right. Well, thanks so much, Dennis. Always a pleasure. We'll talk then. Thanks, Amy.
Coming up, Walgreens, Walmart, and CVS reach a tentative $12 billion opioid agreement. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Are you thinking about earning your MBA? With a fully online iMBA from the University of Illinois Geese College of Business, you can earn your degree on your schedule without ever leaving your home. You'll learn from Geese College of Business's top faculty and build a global network of experienced peers. At an all-in cost of $23,000, it's no wonder the iMBA comes with a 96% student satisfaction rate. To learn more, visit onlinemba.illinois.edu. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. The Chicago-based restaurant reservation company Talk has launched a wine shop, expanding the company from restaurant reservations to now also include e-commerce. Crane's Ali Marathi reported, citing the company, that Talk Wine Shop launched this week with bottles from 30 wineries and plans to add hundreds more. Talk is aiming to give wineries a more seamless way to ship their products directly to consumers instead of going through the current three-tier system, which many in the industry consider to be clunky and archaic. That current three-tier alcohol distribution system traces its roots to the repeal of prohibition, Marathi notes, and it requires alcohol makers to sell their products to distributors who then sell to retailers. The retailers, from liquor stores to bars and restaurants, are the only ones that can sell to consumers. But the Internet has provided some ways around that. Additionally, many consumers and alcohol producers started pushing back on the system during earlier phases of the pandemic, when tasting rooms and breweries, for example, were closed and people were turning online to order almost everything. And this is not Talk's first foray into e-commerce. The company tested a holiday wine shop last year with just a few wineries. The platforms also had their restaurant customers sell cookbooks, holiday kits, and other seasonal ingredients on Talk, according to the company's chief marketing officer. Talk has also had an eventful couple of years. Squarespace bought Talk for $400 million last year. The company also moved into a new Fulton Market headquarters on North Sangamon in May and increased its worker count, growing 139% over the last two years to 268 workers, about 80% of which are in Chicago. Contributing to that growth was an online ordering platform called Talk2Go, which the company launched in March of 2020 to help restaurants switch to carryout amid earlier phases of the pandemic. Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul and, separately, Washington State's Attorney General Bob Ferguson have both sued Albertsons, the parent company of Jewel Osco, to stop the grocery chain from paying $4 billion to shareholders as a special dividend before the state and federal antitrust reviews of its potential merger with rival Kroger, the parent company of Mariano's. The state's accused Albertsons and Kroger in the lawsuit of running afoul of its antitrust and consumer protection laws. Albertsons had announced the dividend after agreeing to merge with Kroger in a deal valued at $24.6 billion. Recently, Ferguson, Raul, as well as Washington, D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine and attorneys general from Arizona, California, and Idaho urged Albertsons in a letter to hold off on the dividend while they review the pending merger, saying it could be a, quote, massive improper giveaway to certain shareholders. The grocery chain rejected the attorneys general's request in the letter. 
Bloomberg reported that in an October 28th letter, the grocery chain told the AGs that the payment is independent of the merger and part of its plan to return capital to shareholders, writing that canceling the dividend would, quote, expose Albertsons to significant legal and financial liability as trading in the stock ex-dividend is ongoing. The AGs argue that the payout, scheduled for November 7th, would deprive Albertsons of money needed to effectively compete. The owner of a vintage 16-story building on LaSalle is facing a $21 million foreclosure lawsuit, adding to a wave of distress on the historic but vacancy-ridden strip and teeing up a potential conversion of the property into residential or other use. Crane's Danny Ecker reported, citing a complaint filed in Cook County Circuit Court, that a venture led by Chicago investor Ruben Espinoza defaulted on its loan tied to the 159,000-square-foot building at 19 South LaSalle by failing to pay it off when it recently matured. An entity controlled by New York-based Ready Capital filed the complaint on behalf of bondholders in the loan, which was packaged with other loans and sold off to commercial mortgage-backed securities investors. Ecker noted in reporting that the lawsuit is one of many like it since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, which fueled the rise of remote work and weakened demand for offices, particularly those in older loop office buildings. Companies aiming to reduce or entirely relinquish their office space has pushed downtown office vacancy to a record high, and rising interest rates this year have made it even more difficult for landlords to sell or refinance their mortgages, forcing a number of them in the loop to face foreclosure lawsuits or surrender their properties to their lenders without a fight. Ecker also reported that Mayor Lori Lightfoot's administration is now hoping investors will buy outmoded office buildings at discounts and convert them into residential use. And this building, Ecker notes, could be one such candidate for conversion. The Espinoza Venture bought it for $22 million in 2019 when the building was 61% leased and took out a $19 million mortgage at the time to help stabilize the building with new tenants. That, according to a Bloomberg report, tied to the CMBS loan. Ecker reported that the building is rated orange by the Chicago Historic Resources Survey, a city report completed in 1995 to analyze the historic and architectural importance of all buildings in the city constructed before 1940. The orange rating is for properties that are not landmarked but, quote, possess some architectural feature or historic association that made them potentially significant in the context of the surrounding community, that according to the survey. That makes such buildings likely candidates to receive tax credits or other public subsidies earmarked for historic properties should a developer restore them as part of a renovation or conversion to a new use. And such incentives could come into play at this building through the city's new LaSalle Reimagined Initiative, which is dangling tax increment financing and other public subsidy sweeteners to get developers to convert old LaSalle office buildings into apartments with affordable units. Bloomberg reported citing people familiar with the matter that CVS, Walmart and Deerfield-based Walgreens Boots Alliance have tentatively agreed to pay more than $12 billion to resolve thousands of state and local government lawsuits accusing the chains of mishandling opioid painkillers. The proposed settlement, potentially one of the last big settlements spawned by more than five years of litigation over the painkillers, calls for CVS to pay $4.9 billion, Walgreens to pay at least $4 billion and Walmart to pay 
pay $3 billion, according to Bloomberg's reporting. CVS officials on Wednesday confirmed in a release their portion of the settlement and noted they are also paying $130 million to resolve opioid claims brought by Native American tribes. CVS said in the release that the settlement payout will be spread out over 10 years. Bloomberg also reported that the overall settlement won't be finalized until enough states, counties, and cities agree to it, which is similar to how a $26 billion opioid deal involving Johnson & Johnson and the three largest U.S. drug distributors was structured in 2021. And the settlement marks another step in the legal fight over opioids which are blamed for more than 500,000 U.S. deaths over the last two decades. States, cities, and counties filed almost 4,000 suits against more than a dozen drug makers, distributors, and pharmacies, seeking compensation for billions spent on the U.S. opioid epidemic. So far, they've recovered about $30 billion to bolster police and drug treatment budgets. That according to data from Bloomberg News. The pharmacy chains were sued for allegedly failing to create legally mandated monitoring systems to detect illegitimate opioid prescriptions being filled. The companies countered that most of the problems tied to the painkillers come from illegal versions of the drugs brought in from outside the U.S. by criminal organizations. In August, a federal judge overseeing all federal opioid suits ordered CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart to pay $650 million in so-called abatement fees to help two Ohio counties cope with the fallout from the public health crisis. His ruling came after jurors held the chains responsible for lax opioid monitoring. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.